This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 22, The Hellenistic Period. age of the Diadochi, three main kingdoms emerged. Ptolemaic Egypt, which was established by Ptolemy I Sota, a companion of Alexander the Great. The Seleucid Empire, which was established by Seleucus I Nicator, a military general of Alexander the Great. Then, Antigonid Macedonia, ruled by the descendants of Antigonus I, Monophthalmus, satrap of Phrygia, and another military general of Alexander the Great. Previously, cities such as Athens were the envy of the Greek-speaking world. But now that Macedonia had taken control of the Greek-speaking lands and extended its influence over such a wide area, new cities were being built across the conquered lands. These cities were much more modern and really served to put older cities like Athens in the past. Alexander the Great himself was an instigator of city building and his cities and those built by his various successors or diadochi and their successors demonstrate the spread of something called the Hellenistic culture, which refers to the diffusion of Greek traditions and culture throughout the known world. The word Hellenistic is derived from the word Hellas, which is the name that Greek speakers used to refer to Greek culture which we have to be careful about describing because Greece was not in any way a country as we know it today. Greek culture and Hellenistic culture derives from the similarities of culture and languages that the societies of the Aegean region shared. The greatest city that is a legacy of the spread of Hellenism has to be the city that Alexander the Great himself founded in Egypt, the coastal city of Alexandria. The importance of Alexandria during the Hellenistic period cannot be overstated. Egypt was always a wealthy province, but couple that with the enlightened academia of the Greeks and it should come as no surprise that Alexandria became the biggest city in the world. It became the capital city of Ptolemaic Egypt and we spoke about it back in Volume 2 when we were summarising Egypt in Episode 20. 
we spoke about the great limestone construction of the Lighthouse of Alexandria that become one of the seven wonders of the world. We also spoke of the Museum, a centre for learning and study of a great variety of subjects which would contain the great library of Alexandria. The museum would become the envy of known academia, named as an institution of the muses and the origin of the word museum. It would be the workplace of the great mathematician Euclid, who may be regarded as the first major academic of this establishment. Another alumni of the museum who lived during the 3rd century BCE was a polymath called Eratosthenes, who made some incredibly good calculations about the physical measurements of the planet Earth, something he recognised as spherical, which is something that the enlightened Greek academics had worked out before Eratosthenes' own lifetime. Ptolemaic Egypt had its fair share of problems with its neighbours, the Seleucid Empire. This is slightly ironic considering how close the two men who these nations were named after were, Ptolemy and Seleucus. The Seleucid Empire did have their own city which flourished during the same period in history, rivalling Alexandria and its name was Antioch. Antioch was established by Seleucus I Nicator and like Alexandria was situated on the Mediterranean coast but this time in the far north of the Levant. Seleucus was also responsible for building the important capital city of Seleucia. City building was an important aspect of the Hellenisation of Asian and African lands. Many of these Hellenistic cities were characterised by Hellenistic style buildings. Typically central to the Hellenistic city was the Agora. The Agora was an open space which was the central assembly place of the city and it could often be a place for market trade and political business. Athens had an Agora which became a place of significance back in its golden age during classical antiquity, very close to the Acropolis of Athens and the Areopagus Hill. Normally, sporting practices such as those practised at the ancient Olympic Games took place in a building called a gymnasium. Ancient shops would surround the Agora, surrounded by constructed walkways called stowers and basilica buildings which in this era were often used for legal and political affairs. There were public baths called thermi which were places for relaxation and even having rooms for massage. Other forms of entertainment would take place at the theatre similar to the one at Egi built by the Macedonians and the site of Philip II's murder. Chariot racing would take place at a stadium 
All of these things were typical Greek buildings and often found in the Hellenistic cities of lands further afield. Religion One of the considerable religious fusions of the Hellenistic influence was when Greek culture mixed with Judaism. Those Jews who were forced into exile by the Babylonians were allowed back to Jerusalem by the Achaemenid Persians. Despite Greek peoples taking over the Levantine lands, we would also find diaspora spreading out from Jerusalem into other Hellenistic lands. One of the most well-known is the Egyptian diaspora, where we can find a Jewish presence in Ptolemaic Alexandria, and it appears that there was a tolerance of religious belief and practice, so there was little tension between the Egyptians and the Jews. There is also evidence of a diaspora in the Seleucid city of Antioch. Closer to home, and it appears that Jewish priests were happy to engage in culturally Greek events, such as at the newly built gymnasium. The Seleucids were quite relaxed about traditional Persian religious practices in their empire, and although it might seem unnatural to the more modern mind for leaders to bestow their own religion on a conquered culture, it was often more regular in the classical era for leaders to allow diverse religious practices to take place within an empire, probably believing that the population may remain more docile if allowed to maintain their traditions. Certainly, the forefather, Alexander the Great, showed a great respect for the cultures of the lands that he conquered. A product of the relationship between the Greeks and the Jews was the Septuagint Bible, which finds its roots before the emergence of Christianity. The Septuagint was a translation commissioned in Alexandria by the Ptolemaic regime, who wanted to translate the Jewish Tanakh, or Old Testament, into Greek. So it was translated into Koine Greek, which was a form of Greek that flourished in these far-off lands. Its name, the Septuagint, is derived from the 70 supposed translators required to complete the job. The Septuagint remains the preferred scripture of today's Eastern Orthodox Church. Diversity Alexander the Great's conquests took him all the way over to the Indus Valley, which is over 4,000 kilometres away from the Macedonian capital city of Pella. During the 3rd century, the satrap of Bactria decided to declare its independence from the Seleucid Empire. We refer to this new country as the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, and this is due to there being a definite fusion of traditional Bactrian culture and the immigrant Hellenistic culture. This is somewhat coincided with the rise of the Parthian kingdom to their west 
and this would create a situation where the Greco-Bactrians would rely more on maritime trade with their Hellenistic cousins in Egypt due to the land routes leading through the lands of political enemies. Coins minted in the Greco-Bactrian kingdom would have Greek written inscriptions on them and the use of Greek writing in these far off lands is supported by other contemporary excavated documents. The lands of Greco-Bactria would have been the gateway to the east presenting a route along the northern side of the Hindu Kush mountain range and ultimately onwards to the lands of the modern country of China. 3rd century BCE burial sites in China have revealed statuettes of soldiers that are wearing distinctly Greek helmets and this contact is further supported by Hellenistic artistic influences in other Chinese artworks. Greek artistic influence was obviously universally popular as we can see influence on Indian societies the main contemporary Indian society was the Mauryan Empire. The edicts of Ashoka, who was an emperor of the Mauryan Empire, were written in various languages, including Greek. These scriptures relate to Emperor Ashoka's affiliation to Buddhism, which is something that we will explore in more detail later on in this volume of the podcast. The eventual demise of the Mauryan Empire during the 2nd century BCE led to a power vacuum in the lands adjacent to the Greco-Bactrian kingdom and so they invaded the lands. This would establish a new Indo-Greek kingdom which existed through the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE, once again characterised by a fusion of Hellenistic and Indian aspects such as the writing on their coinage and their excavated artworks. It seems incredible to think that something that emerged in such a small area in the north of the Balkan Peninsula could expand over the course of a few generations so that its influence could be seen almost on the other side of the world. This rapid migration of culture would have been unimaginable a thousand years earlier but with the structured organisation of large imperial movement which was first demonstrated in the first millennium BCE by the Assyrians and then in turn by the Achaemenid Persians, we can see a progression in imperial expansion that led to the success of Hellenistic culture, initially thanks to the unbelievable success of Alexander the Great. It wouldn't be right to be ignorant of the influences back in the lands of the Mediterranean. The island of Rhodes had a history of its own, being the largest island of the Dodecanese Islands, which are to the east of the Cycladic Islands and just off of the coast of Asia Minor. These islands, along with Rhodes, were originally under the influence of the Minoans, and then the Mycenaeans. After the late Bronze Age collapse, it came under the influence of the Dorians. Then, as Greeks entered the Classical period, Rhodes would become more closely affiliated with Athens. But this association was really to counterbalance the desires 
of the Achaemenid Persians to turn the island towards its own influence. The weakening of the Greek polis would leave Rhodes somewhat alone in the world until the expansion of the Macedonian Empire under the rule of Alexander the Great would bring it under Macedonian influence. So now Rhodes was entering its own Hellenistic period and it was now surrounded by Hellenistic kingdoms and empires on all sides. Rhodes would choose to lean politically towards Ptolemaic Egypt and it was a great choice. We know that when the Nile was fruitful that Egypt was one of the wealthiest places in the whole world. Rhodes was able to enjoy the commercial ties with Egypt that would in turn feed its own wealth. By the 3rd century BCE, Rhodes had become a wealthy entity in its own right. To celebrate their newfound wealth, they began the construction of a huge statue in their main city, which we also call Rhodes. The statue would be of their patron god of the sun, Helios. The statue stood at an amazing 33 metres tall, so it would have been visible for miles around. So incredible was the statue that it would become one of the seven wonders of the world, known to us in modern times as the Colossus of Rhodes. Rhodes would become a significant entity in the Hellenistic world, no longer reliant on Ptolemaic Egypt's support and a powerful nation in its own right. It would become independent in its foreign policies and would establish leadership of a league of Aegean islands by the end of the 3rd century BCE. The Rhodians would tend to lean towards an alliance with the growing Roman Republic, but the Roman Republic was becoming so powerful that Rhodes ended up being swallowed up by this mighty new empire. In the previous episode about the Diadochi, we spoke of the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BCE, in which Antigonus of Phrygia had created an Antigonid empire, and which was defeated by the combined forces of Seleucus, Cassander and Lysimachus. Lysimachus had control of Thrace going into this battle, and was able to expand his own empire into Asia Minor, following the defeat of Antigonus and the annexation of his lands. We then learned that the relationship between Lysimachus and Seleucus became strained, culminating in the Battle of Corypodium in 281 BCE, where Lysimachus was killed. During Lysimachus's rule of Asia Minor, he would employ the services of a man called Philetorus, who he would make the guardian of the treasury at the city of Pergamum near the west coast of Anatolia. However, Philetorus betrayed Lysimachus, pledging the treasury to Seleucus just before the fateful battle. After Lysimachus's defeat, the Seleucids would take the lands of Anatolia, but continue to allow Philetorus 
to govern Pergamon and its surrounding area. The Seleucids found that maintaining control of the Anatolian lands was difficult, so Pergamon grew into an influential city-state in its own right. Philetorus was the son of a man called Attalus, and so the ruling dynasty of Pergamon was called the Attalid dynasty, possibly because of Attalus. We have mentioned Pergamon before during this podcast series, during volume 2, and it was episode 22, the second of our two-parter about the story of writing. The reason is because it is during this period that we believe that Pergamon became a thriving centre for the production of parchment, which was being produced in place of papyrus, which may have been becoming less available as an import from Egypt. It was mentioned that papyrus may have been overused in Egypt and so it was not available, but it could have also been down to the success of Pergamon too. Pergamon had established itself as a kingdom in its own right and thanks to the growing influence of the Roman Republic to the west, Pergamon would be able to secure a fruitful relationship against the Seleucid Empire. The Romans would protect Pergamon as a buffer state against the Seleucids and so Pergamon would turn its back on the Seleucids and enjoy the wealth of being friends with such a powerful alloy. Pergamon would construct great monuments such as the Pergamon Altar and become a great centre of learning with a library being compared to the Great Library of Alexandria and this may have been why Pergamon was denied papyrus from Egypt. Eventually, the kingdom of Pergamon would become engulfed by the Romans during the 2nd century BCE, and Ephesus would become the new provincial capital city. If we look even further west and across the Mediterranean, then we should not forget the island of Sicily, and the fact that Syracuse on the east coast was founded by the Corinthians and has remained closely linked to Greek politics. During the 4th century BCE in the time of Alexander the Great, the Greeks of Syracuse were in conflict with the Carthaginians in the west and this is something that we looked at back in volume 2 when we discussed the Punic cultures during episode 9 on the Phoenicians. During the 3rd century BCE, the island was invaded by King Pyrrhus of Epirus, a character who we have stumbled across before due to his invasion of Sicily and the Italian peninsula, and the fact that before this he had briefly co-ruled Macedonia alongside Lysimachus. Pyrrhus bit off more than he could chew as we detailed in that same episode back in volume 2 and had to leave the island of Sicily for good. This would allow Syracuse to blossom during the middle of the 3rd century BCE but over in the west of the island the ever-growing Roman Republic was pushing the Carthaginians out and ultimately into an unlikely alliance with the Syracusans as the Romans turned their attention to conquering Syracuse as well. 
Syracuse turned to one of their own for ideas on how to combat the Romans, and that Syracusan man's name was Archimedes. Archimedes was a mathematician of highly advanced intelligence, mastering the mysteries of mathematical theories and their application to engineering. However, if we go back again to Volume 2 during Episode 7 regarding the Assyrian Empire, we discussed how the Archimedes screw method of pumping water may have existed a few centuries before Archimedes' own lifetime and that there is evidence of such a pump existing during the Assyrian Empire that may have even irrigated the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. However, we shouldn't take anything away from Archimedes. His expertise is responsible for the incredible claw of Archimedes, which has to be one of the most impressive and innovative ancient weapons. We don't have any contemporary detailed descriptions of the claw of Archimedes, but the general consensus is that it was a great feat of engineering that wasn't unlike a type of crane. It towered over the city walls where it would hook itself onto a warship, lifting one end out of the water before releasing it suddenly where it would either capsize or cause chaos for surrounding vessels. Despite Archimedes' expertise and the noted success of these claws, the Roman Republic would ultimately defeat the Syracusans after a long siege of their city. Sicily was now under Roman rule, and despite calls for Archimedes' own life to be spared, he was killed in the aftermath of the siege, much to the dismay of the Roman general Marcus Claudius Marcellus, who wanted to enjoy the benefit of Archimedes' supreme mental abilities. Roundup So let's attempt to track the events that followed the story of the Diadochi, which was the subject of last week's episode. One of the characters of last week's episode was King Pyrrhus of Epirus, and he was well known for his invasion of the Italian peninsula and the island of Sicily. Now, we know that the polymath Archimedes was born in Sicily not long after Pyrrhus invaded, but it seems that Archimedes had gone to study in Alexandria before Pyrrhus invaded. As we know, Pyrrhus scored famous victories against the Romans, but he lost all of his best officers in the process and ended up worse off than if he hadn't invaded, which has led to the creation of the phrase Pyrrhic victory, which describes a victory that might as well have been a defeat. Just because the last of the Diadochi died in 281 BCE, when Seleucus Nicator was murdered by Ptolemy Caraunus, this didn't prevent there being ongoing tensions between the Hellenistic kingdoms. The most well-known conflicts were between the Seleucid Empire and Ptolemaic Egypt over the lands of the modern-day country of Syria, and these are known to history as the Syrian Wars, and both sides were determined to be in control of these lands, 
neither one being at all prepared to accept defeat for any length of time. However, the 3rd century BCE was also a time of greatness with the success of the Museum of Alexandria with its great library, which is where Archimedes went to study, and the construction of the Lighthouse of Alexandria. We also saw that the Colossus of Rhodes was built at a similar time. Pergamon's stature improved from being a rump state of the Lysimachid Empire into a Pergamon Empire in its own right. A new Greco-Bactrian kingdom broke away from the Seleucid Empire in the east. During the 4th century, the northernmost lands of the Balkans and the lands around the Aegean had been troubled by those residents even further north, the Celts. Now the Celts are a people who we will talk about in much more detail later on in the volume, but during this period they would attempt to invade the Thracians, the Macedonians and the Illyrians. When Alexander the Great rose to prominence, the Celts kept a lower profile for a while. However, after the age of the Diadochi, the Celts would come back and have another try. These particular Celts were called the Gauls. The Gauls caused a lot of headaches for the Greek speakers of the Balkans, but were ultimately held off. A number of these Gallic peoples headed across to Asia Minor where they would settle an area east of Phrygia and northwest of Cappadocia in a land that would be called Galatia due to the Gallic origin of the settlers. Regardless of the external threats, still there was unrest in the Balkan Peninsula. Towards the end of the 3rd millennium BCE, Sparta was still rebelling against the Macedonians who by this time had struck an alliance with the Achaean League. The Macedonians would maintain control by defeating Sparta, but by this time there was an even bigger threat on its way. The 210s BCE marked the start of the Macedonian Wars, which would see the Spartans allied with the Roman Republic who had a foothold in Illyria, which was on the Greek side of the Adriatic Sea, which is the body of water that separates the Balkan Peninsula from the Italian Peninsula. Supporting the Romans against the Macedonians were Sparta and Pergamon, among others. The first conflict ended in a stalemate, but on the second meeting from 200 BCE, the Romans were able to defeat the Macedonians, ending around 150 years of domination of the Balkan nations. During the course of the 2nd century BCE, the Macedonians did attempt to rebel against the Romans later in the century. But by the end of what is called the Third Macedonian War, Macedonia was divided up and became a part of the Roman Republic. This was the end of the independent nation of Macedonia. Over the coming decades, the Romans would conquer and subjugate the entire Balkan Peninsula, 
and by 133 BCE they had even crossed the Hellespont and subjugated Pergamon. The rest of the Hellenistic world is something that we have already discussed in previous episodes. If we go back to episode 3 of this volume, we spoke of the Seleucid Empire's eventual collapse. During the course of the 2nd century BCE, the Parthians grew in power and after taking control of Mesopotamia, the Seleucids were pushed west into the lands of Syria and the Levant. To the north of this reduced Seleucid Empire, the Armenian Kingdom was starting to become a powerful entity and under King Tigranes II, they destroyed the remnant of the Seleucid Empire. Ultimately, Armenia and the remaining lands of the Seleucid Empire would become sandwiched between the opposing forces of the Roman Republic and the Parthian Empire. So gone was the Macedonian Kingdom and gone was the Seleucid Empire. Now, there was just one Hellenistic Kingdom remaining and that was Ptolemaic Egypt and we spoke about that way back in Volume 2, specifically during Episode 20. In 51 BCE, the most famous Cleopatra of all, Cleopatra VII Philopata, became the Queen of Ptolemaic Egypt. She recognised the very real threat to her kingdom of the growing Roman Republic. Despite Cleopatra's best attempts to seek a diplomatic solution to the kingdom's predicament, she was unable to stop the Romans from taking control of Egypt and finally ending the last extant Hellenistic kingdom left and with that we reach the end of the ancient Greek story. Phil Hellenism is enthusiasm for the ancient Greek culture and it's no mystery that the ancient Greek period is something that has captured the imagination of people as much as any period in history and it played a large part in the national feeling that led to the establishment of the modern Kingdom of Greece in 1832. Thanks for listening this week. We've hit a chronological buffer now where we have come to a conclusion of the story of Hellenistic Greeks and our series of ancient Greek is near enough over. All we need to do now is just summarise the entire period and that's going to take place over the next two weeks. Now, for those of you familiar with the History of the World podcast summary episodes, you'll know that they're worth listening to. It contains some interesting information about the last 17 episodes that we've just uh, that we've just published about ancient Greece and the classical period. And um, the uh, to those of you who are not familiar with the summary episodes, they're worth listening to because we don't always just skirt over what we've already spoken about we like to look at things from a little bit of a different angle and paper over any of the cracks that we might have missed in terms of uh, our journey jumping from one subject to another from one podcast episode to another so the summary episodes are 
fantastically useful uh, for organising the information in your own mind. So if you listen to the next two episodes, you'll have a good grasp of the timelines of Greek history. Well, we've reached a, a bit of a milestone. Uh, that was our 100th publication, uh, which that does include counting all the um, all the unscripted episodes. So, 100 publications of the History of the World podcast. I would not have believed that that would have happened when I started out. Maybe I should have done. Maybe I shouldn't be so um, pessimistic about the success of the podcast. Um, we've had 700,000 individual listens um, and it, we started the podcast less than two years ago. So um, I would say that that's pretty successful and it's uh, down to the people listening to the podcast, good people like you who enjoy the podcast and make time for it each and every week. Thank you very much to you all. Let's read out some reviews, shall we? Um, we received a review from Ginappi uh, or Gina. Oh, I like Ginappi. Oh, you know, that's going to be Gina Pie, isn't it? Gina Pie Twelve from the United States of America. But a big hello from Washington State. I very much appreciate the well-crafted writing. Volume One was fun. Just the thing while waiting out the coronavirus. We've also got a uh, a review from Funky16 from Australia. But hi, Chris. Great work on the podcast. Look forward to each new episode on a Sunday from Melbourne, Oz. Especially looking forward to upcoming series on Rome. Yeah, we haven't got too much longer to wait for Rome. So that will be the next major set of episodes from Suflex from the United States of America has written hats up to the great effort in compacting the historical narrative without missing the highlights your biggest fan from the land of the Kemet well thank you so much thank you so much to all of you for those reviews Oh, hang on, I've got some more reviews here. Uh, Michael Abels from um, United States of America has put, Chris gives a great narrative view of history and focuses on most aspects of each era, so you won't just hear about war or politics um, of the time. And um, Isaho, Isaho, Isaho from Great Britain, uh, an excellent podcast, well researched and very informative. Isaho, I I am oh, no, look, forget it. Anyway, uh, thank you ever so much to everyone who's written a review. They really, really do help the podcast. Uh, email messages. I've got one from uh, Frank Gantley. I don't know where Frank's from, but he's put hi, Chris. Fantastic work that you are doing with your channel. It's an amazing achievement and I look forward to continuing to follow you. I am way behind in the ancient world still. Uh, all the best, Frank Gantley. Well, I, su I suppose 
a few of us have to be uh, stuck in the ancient world, don't we? So, uh, yeah, um, I don't know. He's, he's not going to hear this, is he? not going to hear this for another 20 or 30 episodes, so I probably uh, shouldn't, uh, shouldn't bother talking to him at this moment in time. Uh, Caroline Savigny has written, uh, This is fantastic. I'm reading and rereading, in some cases, some of the books of the Old Testament and wanted to have a better understanding of the political pressures, shifts in power, and significant cultural events of the periods to help me get a better understanding. I have listened to my first podcast and look forward to many more. Thank you. Yeah, I, listen, the podcasting world, I've said it enough times in the past, the podcasting world is a wonderful place to explore uh, with uh, many, many amateurs making some very, very professional productions. Um, so uh, podcasts are going to be a major part of our lives uh, going forward, for certainly for the the next decade or two I should imagine uh, hope, hopefully for the sake of this uh, production as well well look I'm going to wrap up this week I hope all of you are staying safe I hope all of you are continuing to respect your local authorities or your or your national guidelines about um, how to avoid spreading this nasty virus that's going around at the moment uh, next week we're going to be looking at Ancient Greece, a summary. So we're going to look at, uh, I think, uh, primarily the uh, the period before the life of Alexander the Great, or maybe up until his sort of the the peak of his uh, the peak of his exploits. Um, but that will be next week. Um, until then, have a fantastic week, everyone. Don't get too bored and be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us